This is episode triple one with senior data scientist from LinkedIn, Eric Weber. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I just got off the phone with senior data scientist at LinkedIn, Eric Weber, and we had a great chat. Really, really enjoyed the chat. And what you will learn in this podcast is, first of all, of course, how Eric got into LinkedIn. He just started his job a few months ago, and we talked a bit about the interview process and uh, what he really enjoys about LinkedIn and specifically the division of LinkedIn where he is um, LinkedIn learning. And then we unexpectedly delved straight into soft skills in data science. It was a very interesting turn in our conversation and we chatted for ages about soft skills in data science. A very, very important topic. I think a lot of data scientists miss out on this and the great, the rock star data scientists are those who master the soft skills. So if you want to be a rockstar data scientist, this podcast is for you. We're going to be giving away lots and lots of tips and hacks from our personal experience. Can't wait for you to check it out. And without further ado, I bring to you Eric Weber, Senior Data Scientist at LinkedIn. Welcome, everybody, to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, I've got a special guest from LinkedIn, Eric Weber, data scientist at LinkedIn. Eric, welcome to the show. How are you going today? I'm doing great, and I'm excited to be here. How are you? I'm doing good as well. And uh, tell us quickly, so you work in the Bay Area, but right now you're somewhere else. Where are you, Eric? Um, I'm actually back home in Minnesota right now. It's a little bit colder. (laughs) How cold is it? A little bit windier, so the wind chill was around 10 degrees Fahrenheit today. 10 a degrees. A little bit cold, so I'm looking forward to getting back to the Bay Area, but you know, spending time at home, family is great as well. That's awesome. So yeah, I just looked it up. It's minus 12 degrees Celsius for those of you who operate in Celsius. That's crazy, because I'm in San Diego right now, and it feels like summer here, and at the same time, you're like, what, three-hour three, three hour flight away? It's already minus 12 there. It's crazy. It is stunning to get yeah. off the plane and feel that temperature. It's a good reminder of what home feels like. Yeah. So you're looking forward to Thanksgiving? What do you guys normally do for the holiday? I am. Yeah, it's a big holiday for my family. So we get relatives from all sorts of areas around the country together and do a big dinner, spend time together. Um, we definitely don't participate in the crazy Black Friday shopping. I think mm. I gave up on that years ago. So, um, But generally just spending time with family. So it's a good opportunity to take a break from work and you know, have a chance to see everybody that I don't get to see regularly. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, cool. Well, let's let's talk about uh, how you got to the Bay Area a little bit. Like uh, what, what made you move there? Because you told me you, you moved just a few months ago. I did, yeah. So I actually moved to the Bay Area at the end of June. Mm-hmm. So I haven't been around LinkedIn for a long time, though I feel like I've done a lot in a short time. Mm-hmm. But what brought me there uh, was twofold. One, my interest in data science, which had been rapidly developing 
over the previous couple of years. So I was, uh, since 2015, I was teaching uh, statistics and biostatistics at the University of Minnesota. And that involved a lot of teaching programming courses, statistical experiments, and design courses. And in conjunction with that, I was doing a part-time master's program in business analytics at the Carlson School of Management. Mm -hmm. And so those two things together, my interest in data, interest in statistics, uh, really pushed me in the direction of data science. Uh, The other thing is my focus on love of education. So ever since I can remember, I've loved teaching um, and I've loved thinking about how to focus on learning. So those two things, data science and learning, naturally turned into an opportunity at LinkedIn to work in their data science team, working specifically on the LinkedIn learning product. So for me, it's kind of a dream come true to be in a job where I get to not only like the techniques and the approaches that I use, but also to be passionate about the area in which I'm working because, Mm. you know, in data science, it's nice to have that passion, to have, to feel like what you're doing makes a difference and has a real impact on people. So those two things brought me to the Bay Area. You know, in addition, I, you know, the weather's a little bit better than it is at home. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And I totally uh, agree with the concept that you got to be passionate about what you're doing. And that's that's amazing that you found that. But you make it sound so easy. You're like, you know, like, oh, I was interested in learning and I was doing data science. And naturally, that turned into Opportunity LinkedIn. Walk us through a bit more. Like, did you apply for the job? Did they find you? How did it happen? So I did actually apply for the job. And and so I should step back and reflect on exactly how not easy it was. I still mm-hmm. have easily over 100 rejection letters that I just kept <laughs> in an email inbox yeah. um, during my job search. Because the reality is, data science, though there are a lot of jobs, it's important to find the right fit. Mm-hmm. And to me, why I mentioned naturally is that once I saw the position open, and once I had a chance to meet with the data science leaders and the managers and go through the interview process, it felt natural. Oh, it gotcha. felt like the type of position I was supposed to be in. But mm-hmm. I think there's, it's anything but when it comes to the application process. As anybody listening knows, it's chaotic. It ends up working in ways you did not anticipate. <laughs> it can be frustrating, all of those things. And that's a lot of actually why I started writing um, you know, I never had posted on LinkedIn until I actually started working there. Mm. And what I wanted to share was sort of my journey about what it means to be in data science, find a job, learn on the job, <laughs> and be real about, you know, there are frustrating aspects to it. As much as we have an awesome career, there are a lot of things that are difficult about data science as well. Yeah, yeah, totally understand. And, and we'll get to that in a, in a moment. So when you when you applied for the job at LinkedIn, you, you sent in your resume, you, you heard back from them, and where did it go from there? So it's a pretty typical interview process. Once you make it through the initial screen, mm-hmm. typically a recruiter reaches out to you. Um, I had a little bit of a unique process because at the time they were changing over from to build, use more of a pipeline mm-hmm. interview process, much more in line with what Google and Facebook do, where you don't necessarily interview for a specific position, you interview to be part of the team, and then placement happens later. No so 
I had an initial um, reach out from a manager in data science that was followed by a conversation with a recruiter. Mm-hmm. And it was and something I want to emphasize because I think it can be overlooked is the importance of those screens with recruiters. I think often that can be viewed as just an information gathering step where you're automatically ticketed to the next round. Mm-hmm. I've found in most cases it's not that. They they care a lot about your cultural fit, about how you how well you know the company, why you want to work there. And so that was actually a huge step for me. It was a, I had a great positive impression coming out of that conversation with the recruiter. Mm-hmm. I went through standard interview process after that. Um, we have a couple of uh, technical phone screens. I can't get into too much detail yeah, about what exactly they involve, but certainly it, 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 we try to evaluate things like product sense mm-hmm. and then also the ability to do data manipulation. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine standard you know, ways we manipulate data with SQL and Python and R and those type of things. Yep. The on-site interview process that follows those, the successful completion of those technical phone screens. The on-site interview process um, is a day. You spend mm-hmm. a very intensive day um, going through a set of different interviews. And depending on the position and the team, those can take on a little bit of a different flavor. But you can imagine we cover things like statistics, we cover things like machine learning, and all of this is available to people so they know the general topics before they would ever come on site. Yeah. But I think it's helpful to just see that there's not really a trick to it. It really is. And data science interviews, I know if you read prep for them, often they can say, be, be ready for these 100 different questions. Mm-hmm. Or, But in general, we try to do a comprehensive evaluation of you know, whatever data science knowledge means in a particular company. So from that point, I went through a standard negotiation process mm-hmm. with the company. And um, I actually moved pretty quickly after that. I, uh, from acceptance of the job offer to starting, I think, was less than three weeks. So it was a pretty intensive move from Minnesota all the way to the Bay Area. But Yep, packed your bags, packed your skis. Yeah, pretty much all those things. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, but it's been it's been great ever since, and I'm happy I made the move. That's awesome. So you uh, like sounds like a lengthy interview process, but and thanks for walking us through it. Uh, but also sounds like it was worth it. You're you're really enjoying your time at LinkedIn right now. I am, yeah, and I think it's interesting because people. I get a lot of messages every day on LinkedIn that say, you know, I want to work there, mm. and I think it's important in some cases to think about why. Mm-hmm. Because yes, it is certainly a brand name company, and it's helpful to have on a resume. But more than that, when people ask, you know, about referrals or things like that, I often will respond and ask, "Well, what's why do you want this job in particular?" Mm-hmm. And if it's because of the brand name, I often don't think that's necessarily enough in data science right oh, now. Oh yeah, of course. The, the so, correct answer is data because right. of the LinkedIn data. <laughs> it is, and it's, it's it's fascinating. I've had, and I, I every day I find out more things that I don't know and yeah. that I get a chance to learn. So no, no regrets. It's been great. Nice, nice. That's really cool. And so, uh, it, it it's a very interesting subdivision of LinkedIn. Uh, this is is this LinkedIn Learning or is this Linda? Because LinkedIn acquired Linda a couple, you know, a year, a few years ago. Which which one is it? So it is LinkedIn Learning. The content, and depending on how you talk to our marketing team or our branding team, they might 
you know, say different things. Yeah. But really, LinkedIn Learning and the content is generated through what's available on Lynda. So okay. they did acquire Lynda two years ago. Mm-hmm. But LinkedIn Learning is the eventual product. So as we move customers from Lynda to LinkedIn Learning, one day that will be what we want to house everything under is LinkedIn Learning. Gotcha, gotcha. And so does um, LinkedIn Learning work with... So this is like educational courses uh, similar to Udemy or uh, Coursera and other platforms that are out there. And can anybody take these courses or is it only available to companies as part of a corporate subscription? Um, Anybody can take the courses. So Mm -hmm. there are consumer subscriptions. There are enterprise level subscriptions, free trials for anybody who wants to try to use it. Really, we try right now. We're in a phase where we are looking you know, to grow a customer base. And in some cases that comes from um, existing customers on Lynda, but we're also trying to generate courses and topics that are of great interest to industry professionals Mm -hmm. and trying to integrate that into the LinkedIn ecosystem. We have that advantage of having a large platform and being able to try to build courses and education within that platform. Um, It's really our ultimate goal. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And so, I uh, the past couple of times I was flying, especially the long flights to, like Emirates flights, uh, in, uh, specifically, they have on on the selection of movies and programs. They actually have LinkedIn Learning. So that's also something that you guys do. That's that's really cool. Yeah. There's a. I think one thing that I would say about LinkedIn Learning is we have some incredibly creative and amazing people that are mm. both in data science but also trying to think about how we share this product and how we try to motivate learning um, across the world. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of groundbreaking ideas and we've seen attempts and moves in this direction by Coursera and Udemy and other platforms. And I think there's still this central question that we're all trying to solve is how do we make learning a habit? You can imagine you know, things we want to be like Facebook, where we want people to develop this habit of doing something, except in this case of the learning. And yeah. I think it's an important question to think about. How do you shape human behavior to get them to repeatedly come back to something and continue to learn it? It's a big challenge that I don't think anyone has really solved well mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah, interesting. And so uh, the interesting thing about though this podcast is that people listening to it they're mostly or most of them already in the habit of learning they've taken courses and they're listening to this podcast to learn so what do you have to say to them the like people who are already in this habit i'd say stay in the habit <laughs> so i think and i realize that sounds you know relatively trivial keep doing what you're doing mm-hmm. but as this field develops i think one thing that i've come to see is even after Oh, you know, a year of really being out of school, and uh, I have to go back and revisit a lot of the things that I knew or thought I knew at the end of you know my formal education, because things change really fast. Mm-hmm. And so it's this attitude toward learning. And the other thing that I think maybe is overlooked is developing an individual attitude toward learning is awesome. A really powerful thing that you can do with that is try to extend that to other people. Um, try to share your passion uh, with the people around you, mm-hmm. right? That may not have, maybe they don't have the same outlook. Maybe they don't know about the same resources that you do. 
But if you can think about how powerful it is to communicate that type of attitude to a larger organization, I think that's where a lot of the big gains come from. Mm -hmm. And so I would put that as a challenge to people listening to a podcast like this is that's awesome that you want to learn and that you have that attitude. The next big challenge is how do you share that with other people? Amazing. I love that. It's a great challenge. I would actually take a step further to quantify it and say, uh, guys listening, the challenge is get at least two other people who are not in the habit of learning. Introduce them to something that you've learned recently, like a course or a, maybe an article or a book or whatever that you that's been, benefited you and changed your life. And once you've done that, shoot Eric a message on LinkedIn <laughs> boasting about how you've... Um, accomplish this challenge i'd love to hear about it i mean that's kind of my reason for posting the things that i do on linkedin is i'm trying to share the things that i learn every day that i figure out at work even if those aren't always you know amazing accomplishments even the little stuff can be really powerful for people mm -hmm. yeah yeah totally agree and speaking of work can you without us disclosing of course any classified or uh, company secrets can you walk us through about uh, some of the things that you do at work because people are definitely interested in what a data scientist does at linkedin and especially in the space of education yeah that's awesome to give you a sense of what i do i think it's helpful to contextualize data science at linkedin a little bit mm -hmm. i'll put this in as a as a plug our data science org is already large we're well over 150 in terms of headcount. Whoa. But we, we are Just the always, data science side of things? Yeah, or? our data, data science side That's of so things. That's so cool. And so, but we also have open headcount. We have, um, at any given time, we probably have 20 to 25 because we're growing. And so this is something um, that I want to emphasize is just because we're big doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to grow. Mm. So... We do a lot of different things. You can imagine with a, with a group that size, we handle a lot of different data science tasks. So we're split into really by product. So I work in our LinkedIn learning product. We have talent solutions, which is what any recruiters hearing this would be familiar with mm -hmm. when they're trying to find talent. We have sales solutions for salespeople, and we have marketing solutions. So those are really our four main um, verticals or products, so to speak, within the organization. And so we organize our data science teams around those. Mm -hmm. And within each of those, we tend to focus on a product side and a go-to-market side. Mm -hmm. The product side is more what you would think of in actually design of the product, where you're trying to evaluate and test features um, and things related to the product itself. Uh, the go-to-market side is rolling things out. So you can think about go-to-market as sales, marketing, content, any sort of that, <laughs> anything mm -hmm. that falls within that uh, realm. Mm -hmm. And I specifically work on the go-to-market side within LinkedIn Learning. Mm -hmm. And what that means is I kind of cover sales, and I cover sales for our bigger customers. So we ask questions, of course, without disclosing too much about, okay, how do we know what our best customers or the customers we'd like to go after. How do we know what they look like? How do we build profiles of them? How do we help, let's say, salespeople understand the best approach to selling to a particular customer? How do we make our sales org as efficient as possible with data? And I think that's the central question that everything I do 
falls under is how do we make the sales side more efficient? And at the end of the day, our value is really measured by how efficient we can make the sales organization, right? We don't generate, we're not in a revenue generating piece. And I think that's an important thing to remember. So in some cases that can say, okay, I build profiles of what our best customers look like. In cases where we want to try, you can imagine how many different companies we have on LinkedIn, right? We can't call all of the companies. So we want to understand which companies should we be calling. And if we call them, what kind of things should we be asking for? What kind of things should we be saying? So you can imagine a lot of the customer segmentation type things and machine learning models that underlie a lot of that work. And as you hinted at earlier, we certainly have no shortage of data. And that's one thing that we sit with a distinct advantage of is having a lot of information. And so we can measure things that may otherwise be difficult to measure or may otherwise require pulling together maybe information from 50 different third-party sources. We have it centralized. And so to me, that's one of the most exciting things is we can generate ideas and then see exactly how powerful our data is to try to help us accomplish those. That's that's really cool. And with uh, the amount of data that LinkedIn has, especially like you, you've got static data on you know, like uh, information about the person's uh, background, about their uh, age, about their, um, I don't know, like uh, previous job experiences and stuff like that. That changes, but very, very slowly over time. And then you've got dynamic data, which is constantly updating, like people posting stuff, people viewing stuff, companies posting updates and so on. So like uh, data that updates every day, sometimes even every hour. Which of those two types of data would you say is the most valuable for your predictions? I think that is, I think that's actually an open question. Mm -hmm. Part of what I, part of what we try to do is we try to spend our time working on open problems Mm -hmm. where we aren't necessarily sure what the most valuable piece of data might be. And to me, when I answer what is most valuable, I think it depends on what the end user is looking for. And in my case, the end user is, let's say, our sales intelligence side. If they're asking for um, characteristics of what the best customers look like, most likely those are going to be slowly changing dimensions um, over time. But let's say that we, in some cases, we find something new that we want to be able to measure about a customer. And that might require going to understand data that changes every hour, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Of course, it could change a lot faster than that. One of the operational challenges is figuring out as we build models and as we try to do analysis, it's much easier, I shouldn't say easier, but it's more traditional to look at the things that slowly change Mm -hmm. rather than have to rebuild models over and over and over again as we have data come in every hour, every minute, every second. So I think one of the things that I find fascinating about our work is it's not just a build the mo- one-off, build the model, and then generate insights from it. We need to be able to think at a production level. Mm. Um, I've posted about that before on LinkedIn, is that we want to be able to scale things over time. And I think a lot of companies are starting to encounter this challenge about how do you scale these models that you're building? How do you do this? How do you monitor their health over time? 
even as, let's say, the data is changing. And as data science orgs become larger and larger within a lot of companies, this is particularly true in the Valley, we're having to answer these questions about scalability. It's not just about one-off best model performance any longer. Mm. And so is it like in an organization like this, would you have people, specific data scientists who are designated to that question of scalability or does everybody in their role have to take that into consideration? For example, like, does that affect you, that problem? Um, I would say everybody has a role in it, Mm. though we certainly have... Um, hierarchies within the data science org. We also operate as a very in a very flat structure type of way, mm-hmm. where we're expected to really be working not only with other people in our team but across teams and horizontally, mm-hmm. and tackling these challenges together. I would say that one of the things that I've noticed in my first few months at LinkedIn is people take responsibility for getting things done. Mm -hmm. If they notice a problem, if they notice an issue, they take ownership. And that taking ownership of the data product that you create and its health over time, that in a lot of cases can be cradle to grave, right? From its its creation all the way to the time that we phase it out. And Mm -hmm. so there's not necessarily just a few people who monitor models or the health over time or focus on scalability, um, though certainly at some point, we have to decide on smaller teams to be able to tackle individual issues. And it's data science problem, but it's also, it's an org-wide problem, right? We, any company that's growing really quickly um, has to deal with, it's an engineering problem, right? Data engineering, data ingestion. So to me, it's it's a big grand experiment in how, how fast you can scale and how effectively you can scale um, as the data increases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's very apt description of that. Okay, so uh, you create models, and you mentioned there's some some things about your work which are difficult. Let's dive into that for uh, for a few minutes. Okay, awesome. What what do you find the most difficult in your work as a data scientist? I think the thing that's most difficult, and also probably the thing I enjoy the most. <laughs> it's kind of funny to put those two things together, <laughs> yeah. but we often receive problems that are relatively ill-formed. And by that I mean our business partners don't come to us with a problem that it says build this model in this particular way and tell us the exact result. We often get a question that is or or a directive that is stated at a high level, right? We need this to be better. Mm. And so the question is what does it mean for something to be better? Mm-hmm. That's a whole discussion in and of itself. Then also deciding if we're going to make this better or improve this model or find a new metric, what data do we need to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, the assessment of, A, do we have the data readily available? B, if we don't have it readily available, do we have it, period, and can we get to it? Um, and C, if we don't have it, is it, let's say, worth it to go pursue it? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it worth it to go get this new data? And overarching all of these issues, to me, is if we are going to be able to answer a question, an ill-formed question, we need to be able to rely on the data that we have to be accurate. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's starting with this difficult-to-answer question because, well, it's not stated in something that is nicely tied back to a model. 
trying to turn it into, let's say, a data science problem. Mm -hmm. And then as you turn it into a data science problem, you find all of these issues. Data availability, data quality, every organization deals with these. But for me, it's this process of sort of unpacking the business problem to a data science problem to then getting back and actually seeing what is the source of truth data Mm. that I need to answer this question. And then, of course, going back up. Once you're able to measure what you want to measure, build the model in the way that you want to, how do you repackage that for the business part? Because on their end, they only want an answer to their question. Mm-hmm. It's They don't necessarily need to know all of these details about how things worked out. They just need to know that it works and that mm-hmm. your response works. And so I find that to be the most challenging piece is to, at the end of the day, take what may have been a really complex process and distill it down to a relatively simple and actionable answer. So for me, that's the hardest, but also the most important and enjoyable thing that I do. That's awesome. That's, so you're acting like an investigator in that, yeah, in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's really cool. And like, uh, could you give us a few tips? Like, Since this is your most challenging part and, and the one you most enjoy, I'm sure you have some best practices that you have that you might be able to share. For, for instance, like I, I've uh, encountered similar situations as well. Like back when I was in consulting, the the problems were usually formulated already, but not by the client, but by the um, uh, relationship manager in the business. So whoever sold the project to the client already formulated the problem into uh, a data science or the issue of the business into the, a data science problem or question. And we were just solving it as analysts and um, data scientists. But then when I moved out of consulting into the industry, I was like hit like smack bang on with that exact same uh, situation where your um, colleagues in the business come to you with issues, they're ill-formed, as you say, and then you have to turn them into problems. And like once I got over that, like got got the hang of that, how to put them into uh, problems and questions that are solvable with data science, I came across another issue that people, unless you actually put it into writing and get their uh, confirmation that this is the rephrased version of their initial issue, uh, people tend to do something that's called scope creep to you, where you're working on a project and then they're like, oh, can you do this as well? Can you do this as well? Can you do this? And they, they think that's related to their original issue, but it's not anymore related to that question that you formulate. So kind of like one of my biggest takeaways from that was once you've done that formulation and once you've come up with a, uh, a new question or objective, that you can solve with data science, you got to put it in writing, you got to get their written confirmation that this is what you're going to be working on. Otherwise, there's not going to be an end to it. So have you encountered anything like that? And do you have any other tips that you might be able to share with us? I, you basically, I feel like I could say exactly what you just (laughs) did. Um, I think it gets to a larger point, um, is that communication matters. Mm. And my advice is to over-communicate. You might, some people might not like getting a ton of emails from you, Mm. but in the end, over-communicating, making sure that everyone is looped in and everyone has a solid understanding of the problem that you're solving, the time that you think it will take (laughs) to solve it, Mm -hmm. and also what the end result might look like. What is the data product or insight that you're expected to deliver on the other side? Um, Circling this, getting a ton of 
uh, business partner buy-in, also making sure that you have a business partner supporter. Uh, I think that's something that I would suggest is make sure that you have, because sometimes you mentioned, you know, uh, scope <laughs> creep, mm-hmm. yeah. people will pile things on and expectations. You have to have a business partner who's on your side, who's willing to push back on other people, because sometimes that can be difficult as a data scientist to say no, mm. right? Even though, so I often try to say over communicate, get business partner buy-in, find someone who's a champion, someone who's going to be a support for you. Mm-hmm. Because without this step, you may go down a rabbit hole. You might find that you didn't that you didn't produ- or you produce something in the end, and people say, "Well, I thought you were going to do this." You always want to have that buy-in up front. So I think what you mentioned before is a perfect example: communicate, mm-hmm. communicate, communicate, and everything else comes from there. Gotcha, gotcha. And so just to sum those up for our listeners, make sure to put a put the agreed end result expectation in writing. Put your timeline in writing. Get business partner buy-in. Get a bid, ideally get a business partner supporter who's going to be on your side, and over communicate. And on that last one, I would like to add as well. I totally agree, and I think not just at the start or the onset of the project. You over communicate. The way I understand is even as the project goes along, you keep communicating. You don't hold your cards close to your chest. Instead, you you say as you like you run into an issue and you need more time. You expect delays. You tell them as you make a like hit hit a checkpoint in your project. You show the results. So you, sometimes, it, sometimes it's tempting to keep all the results hidden and then surprise them at the end. Like ta da! Look what I did. This is amazing. And you know sometimes you'll get everybody clapping and applauding. But sometimes you'll also get people like this is not what we wanted. So it's better to actually show them along the way. And that way, if they're agreeing to your checkpoints like every week that you've made progress, then it's much harder for them to go back on their word and say, actually, this is not what we wanted because they were with you along the way the whole time. Yeah. Try to include them. Think about them as partners along the way that you very rarely are going to be able to do something completely independently and produce something that will make everybody happy. (laughs) So you need to kind of carry them along with you and that might always, sometimes that seems like a bit of a burden to send, let's say, detailed updates every week. But it pays for itself mm. in terms of time and uh, payoff in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally agree. And uh, what would you say you do if, have you ever had a project where you have multiple stakeholders and it's uh, like there's no one obvious main stakeholder like you might have like three four people talking to you about the project and it's not obvious who's who's the main one they might be like let's say two teams and there's two stakeholders and and they kind of have a bit different questions or a bit different objectives what do you do in those cases i think it's important that everybody that's involved in the project that touches the project has a clear view of the different asks and requests that are being made to you Mm -hmm. so I often make sure that if I have multiple teams that are invested in a process and perhaps they each need something different, that they're still well aware of what's being asked at a global level. Mm -hmm. Because what's being asked at a global level of you often impacts your ability to maybe be responsive to one team in a particular week. Or maybe there was a fire on one project for a particular week so you didn't have as much time to catch up with the other one. Mm -hmm. But making sure that they are, again, this goes back to over-communicating, 
make sure that you loop in everybody who has a stake in the project. Mm -hmm. And before you commence on the project, make sure that there is an agreement and there's try to get this in writing. Don't just, mm-hmm. you know, get an agreement in passing. Say this these are the major priorities. Mm-hmm. Because when something takes a turn in the middle of the project and they try to change the priorities, it's important to have something to go back to and say, this is really I would call it almost like a project charter, right? Where you say, these are the main things that were asked. Any deviation from this really needs to be bumped up even higher outside mm-hmm. of anybody in the team. Maybe it's a vice president mm-hmm. that sits outside yeah. of everybody. But make sure that it's clear about how changes can be made to that. And they usually should not be able to be made by a stakeholder. There should yeah. really be somebody who can look at the project top down and really see if there's a need for major changes. That's, that's golden advice. And in consulting, that would be, if you want to make a change, you got to pay more. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So the only difference is in a business, you, you can't, you don't say that, right? But just, it's still time, effort. It's still, you know, like delays other things. So Absolutely. I love how this podcast has taken an unexpected turn into soft skills into data science. I'm really enjoying this. I got, I got another question for you. How important are people skills in that process that you find the most interesting and the most challenging in understanding how to change the problem. And what I mean by that is not the people skills with the stakeholders that are asking you to do the uh, project, but do you ever like go out and walk around LinkedIn and talk to people and say, you know, like build some domain knowledge, build some expertise, not through the data, but through talking to people and getting their insights into what's going on, into what they think about the issue? Yeah, I would call this certainly context expertise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's something that is fundamental to delivering something of high quality in the end. Because in data science, we may be coming from totally different areas. I didn't come from a sales background, yet I support sales intelligence. So Mm -hmm. what does that mean? That means I need to better understand exactly what it is that sales does, how they do it, and why they do it in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And that requires going beyond the data science team, right? Very, and so I need to go seek out people who have a really good understanding of a particular context. Mm-hmm. In some cases, maybe even observe salespeople at work mm-hmm. to really understand what that process is, what the constraints are, what the pain points are. That people skills, it's so important because I would say if there's one thing that can make or break your success mm-hmm. as a data scientist is yeah. that ability to seek out the right people to help you understand the problem fully. Because we, I think about it like this. When we have a data science problem, we are familiar with um, the measures and the quantifiable things related to the problem. Mm -hmm. But we also don't know what we don't know. Maybe there's a metric or maybe there's something that the business side or the salespeople know is fundamentally important that Mm -hmm. isn't captured in any of the metrics that you have. Mm-hmm. And you probably aren't going, your database is not going to scream and say, hey, go measure yeah. this, right? This needs to come from people who are on the business side. Mm-hmm. And having that, um, not only the ability to go seek it out, but also just to feel like it's an important part of every data science problem that you tackle. I think for me, that's something I put on a checklist of whenever I'm starting a project, I better understand the context before I launch into trying to build any sort of model. Yeah, yeah. So I agree with that as well. It's, 
it's I, I heard somewhere that there's a I might be getting this a bit uh, the quote incorrect a bit incorrect but the the meaning boils down to this that there are two types of knowledge there's things that we think we know and there's things that we know that we don't know and that that's that's it and this is what we're talking about here that there's going to be things that you know you don't know and you need to find a way to get get to them I love that that's a it's it's well stated yeah okay and um going out there talking to people it's really fun like i like that part of the job that you have this opportunity reason whatever you want to call it to get out of your desk and actually walk around and i feel sometimes i feel like uh, it might be a, a bit of a stretch of a me- metaphor but i feel like a doctor you know you like you're walking around the organization you like you look here you talk to these people um you you know you look at this process you inquire about how this thing is working like um in a in a previous role when i was in a like helping customer support guys deal with their like backlogs and stuff like that i was i was actually allowed to participate in phone calls they were having with customers and kind of like listen in on how which questions they ask what responses they get and so on it was so much fun like i i really like that part of the the being in the field kind of thing of data science you know what stands out to me about saying that is the qualities that you described about being excited about going out to understand the context and how the business works. Yeah. That's also an important part of developing leadership skills. I'm definitely of the belief that a lot of the best data scientists are eventually going to move up into high-level leadership positions. And I think part of that comes from really understanding the business well. And so what you described is important um, for anybody, not just anybody, not in data science, but anybody who really wants to take ownership and leadership in a business is to take that initiative to understand what people's experiences are like, what their pain points are. Exactly. And uh, and uh, I'll, I'll take your comment even further that uh, I also read somewhere that uh, previously in the previous century or the start of this one, uh, it was important for an executive to be good at marketing, to understand marketing and how how he's going to sell the product, sell the business, and so on, because like like long ago at the start at the start of the previous era, like in the 1900s and so on, it's more about established relationships and you know you had the radio. That's all the media you had. Maybe some TV, but not that much advertising. So it was uh, you you just go to the store and you get what you get, and yeah, there's not much competition going on if you're the major player selling a certain product in a certain region then the guys from across uh, the country, even in the U.S., won't be able to really compete with you. But then we moved into a very digital, internet-driven age, and all executives had to start thinking more about marketing. And marketing wasn't, it wasn't just a given that their product will sell. Now they're all of a sudden they're competing with everybody, not just locally, but nationally, even globally. And there's so, all sorts of different media, so they had to have a good understanding of it. And now we're moving into an, area, an era where data science is... Though not marketing is king, not that saying anymore, marketing is king, but uh, data science is king. And now all executives have to upskill themselves in data science. Like it, it uh, uh, tells along with what you said that data, like the most successful data scientists will move into executive roles. And that's, that's a really cool way of putting it. I, I really like that. But even those who are now executives, if they want to stay where they are, they will have to get up to speed with data science and, you know, develop that side of things they might have the people side of things but they'll have to develop the data science side of things very interesting future ahead i think i agree yeah i think you make a great point in that 
a lot of the demand for data science is also coming from executives who want to better understand it. Mm. Um, I think you're seeing that as programs roll out uh, nationwide for executive education. Almost mm. all of them have either specialties or sub-courses that focus on data science. Yep, yep, exactly. And like, wh why do you think that is like, let, let's say there's, uh, for instance, some executives, uh, which they are, <laughs> we know you're listening, uh, there's some executives listening or some business owners or entrepreneurs listening. Why would you say in a nutshell, is it important for them to understand the concepts, principles, and power of data science? Data science is an investment. Right. If you look at salaries of data scientists, you look at what it costs to go through and hire one and keep one over time, um, there's a significant investment cost. Mm -hmm. And in order to understand what you might get out of that, um, I think it requires two things. One, it requires a detailed understanding of your own business, what the pain points are of your business, what the long-term vision is for your business, and that's often housed within the mind of a leader, a CEO, whatever it might be. But it's also important to understand how data science might fill that gap. Mm -hmm. And to understand how data science might fill that gap or be part of that long-term vision, it might not be important that you understand every single algorithm, but it's important that you understand what it, its affordances and constraints for your business. Like, is there really going to be a value add from bringing in a data science team? Mm. Or do you need maybe a stand, an analyst who can just pull data? And so as organizations begin to scale their data science operations, having executives who can really understand the ROI, so to speak, understand how to build a data science team, mm. I think that might be one of the most challenging pieces. Um, and in the end, I think what's most difficult for orgs right now, how do you find leaders who are also visionaries to lead a data science team? They're mm -hmm. not just good at the data science side, but they can see where things are going. And so to me, that demand and the importance for leadership to develop data science skills is to understand the affordances and constraints that it has for that particular organization. Mm, love it, love, the, love that answer. I, I I didn't even think of it that way before. That executives need to understand data science because it's an investment that they will inevitably have to make, and they need to understand how to best make it and if what to what extent it's going to be worthwhile and what benefits they're going to get from it, ROI wise. Uh, and I wanted to touch on something else you mentioned just now: the leadership, not of the organization overall, but finding the leaders in that are going to lead the data science divisions, they're going to build the data science team. And there's an example that I've heard a couple of times now. It was of a company, uh, of a big bank in the US, and I, because every time this example is mentioned, I don't even know what bank it is, because you know, <laughs> these consultants, it was a big consulting firm that did the consulting job for them, for that bank, and then one of the presenters was talking about it. And so they they built out this whole data science division i think they hired like over a hundred people so you can imagine the scale of the bank because like they they've caught wind that uh, data science is getting big and this this was like last year or the year before and they they instantly like okay we're going to invest a couple million dollars into this data science division uh built out a hundred people and they were doing projects and then literally that lasted for one and a half years or or somewhere around that and they closed it down they fired or like 
they took the, the best of the best into different parts of the business and then they fired like 90% of the remaining data scientists. And the reason for that was that the management that was running the data science division didn't uh, see how to integrate with the rest of the business in terms of showing the value that they bring. So they were doing some projects and so on, but they weren't demonstrating the bottom line, how they were changing. As you can imagine in banks, it's it's very it's a cutthroat environment and they've got to compete with other banks and so on. And if, and if you're not delivering to the bottom line, if you're not changing the profit of the of the business, then they don't see that you're bringing value. And that whole mismatch, even though they were doing stuff and pr- probably valuable stuff, but it wasn't conveyed in the terms of how much profit they were making per project and so on per month. And they just disbanded the whole, the whole team. And so I completely stand by what you said that it's also important to find the right people to build those data science teams so that they integrate with the business well and deliver on what the business objectives are. Right. I think, I mean, you've said it very well. I mentioned a little bit before data science by its nature is not a revenue generating piece typically. Mm-hmm. And so your value is going to be measured through the people and the parts of the organization you affect. Mm-hmm. And it's important to agree with those parts of the organization as to how you're going to measure that effect. Mm-hmm. And if you try to measure it, of course, just like we know in data science, trying to measure something retrospectively is much more difficult (laughs) than trying to actually plan for and figure out a way to measure something proactively. And to me, that's where a lot of, when I see really good data science leaders, and I'm fortunate to have a lot of them um, to look up to at LinkedIn, they think proactively. They think ahead as to how are we going to show our value to this organization and honestly, the organization, Data Science Org at LinkedIn, would not be as big as it is if they were not thinking about these issues. We wouldn't get this many positions approved to hire if we weren't thinking proactively about how to show our value. And I think that's an important thing for anybody listening to think about how you establish ROI as a data scientist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree. All right, I, I got one more question on... Um... Uh, soft skills, and then and then we'll move on. Uh, it's, it feels like it's taking up the bulk of the podcast, but oh, yeah. that's totally fine. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, we talked about soft skills at the start uh, when you gotta come up with the project. We talked about soft skills during when you gotta go and develop the context knowledge, as you called it, context context expertise. How about soft skills at the end? What uh, is your experience in, or? Like, what, what tips can you give us in terms of presenting? Obviously, you have some projects that you're presenting to your business partners, uh, and this, this happens, uh, you know, you've probably done quite a few of those. Like, what kind of uh, presentation skills or techniques do you use? Do you use, a, do you use slides? Do you not use slides? Do you just send off the presentation? Uh, what's the most important? Uh, do, do, peop- do data scientists, in your view, need to be personable in that sense? Do they need to make it uh, an engaging presentation? What, what are the best uh, approaches there? Yeah, I think this is, this is a really fascinating question for me. And I think I'll start by saying the temptation in summarizing what you've done is to overshare about its complexity. Mm. Um, because you did a lot of interesting stuff, right? You, you have this desire to share 
the cool ways that you approach the problem, how you define the problem, how you iterated through the problem. But in thinking about communicating complexity, you really should only be communicating complexity if it's necessary to understand yeah. your final recommendation, your final solution. So I often start when I'm thinking about these presentations, and they are important, they are extremely important. I start with what is the takeaway message going to be? Right? When I have, let's say I have leadership in the room and I have 20 minutes, 15, <laughs> I'll say 15, because that's about as much as you're gonna get. What do you want them to walk out of that room with in mind? And typically, you need to have a clear, succinct message. Right? And so I try to never go more than having three major points in any presentation. Um, and that's even of a long presentation. So in 15 minutes, I might have two major takeaways. And so I build those takeaway points, and then I build the presentation from those takeaways. Mm. I go into the level of detail that I need to go into to help them understand how we can be sure that these takeaway points are solid. I also try to not only say what, what happened, but also be forward-looking and say, while these are the major takeaways, there are typically things that we still don't understand, um, things that we need uh, further support for, because if you can communicate the value in those takeaways and also say, hey, we may be asking for something down the road, I think it's useful to at least put that idea in mind about where what the next steps of this process are. And certainly there are some cases they might just be one-off analyses. But if you're doing data science in the way I think it really should be done, you're going to find things during your analysis and during your work that lead you to think in new directions. And I think it's important to share those in, in, a, in an effective and responsible way with leadership. So that's really where I start. What are your takeaways? Tie each slide, each whatever it's going to be. Maybe it's a memo. Everything should come back to those major takeaways and resist the urge to dig into all the complexity mm -hmm. unless you absolutely have to. Awesome. Love it. So start with the takeaways. Build your slides around that. And that note about some sharing some possible future work. It's really good. I was just thinking that you'd make a really good consultant, like on selling in the process of the presentation. That's that's genius. Yeah, selling. I mean, you really, <laughs> I mean, as a data scientist, you are selling yourself in a lot yeah. of ways, right? You're selling the data product you create, the insights you generate. And I think it's a great, <laughs> always think about yourself as <laughs> by the product that you're selling. It's yeah. important. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, well, in the what we've got left of this podcast, I would like to rewind a bit back back to you now that we've talked so much about the soft skills which i think was very valuable and i hope a lot of listeners got some something out of it tell us a bit more about your passion so uh, you said you're passionate about education about teaching uh, how did this come to be because like i have i have a very similar passion but it took me so long to discover it i for years i didn't know i knew i was good at it i knew i enjoyed it but when I figure out that it's my passion, that's when things like clicked and everything uh, like lined up and I could, could exactly see which way I need to go in which direction. How did it happen for you? That's awesome. I was fortunate to have it basically presented to me early on <laughs> in life. It was actually in high school. Um, so I was probably 16, 
or 17 at the time. And one of my teachers said, you'd make a really good teacher. Mm. And I kind of sat on that for a while and I thought, is that true? Would I really be a good teacher? Like why? And I started thinking about it a lot more and I realized that basically every time, everything I enjoyed came back to helping people better understand things that were difficult. So this started out in being interested in teaching math. Over the years, it's meandered to teaching statistics, teaching data science, teaching programming, and even like we've just spent a little bit of time on soft skills, mm. teaching people how to you know, become more comfortable in communication. And so that passion was unlocked really early for me. And I think it's changed over time in terms of how I've seen myself contributing to education. It started out thinking, okay, I'm going to be in, let's say, a secondary education, like a high school classroom, teaching mathematics. That's why I initially envisioned myself doing. And then it was, I'm going to be teaching at a collegiate level. I'm going to teach undergrads. Mm -hmm. And then it was, I'm going to teach grad students when I was at the University of Minnesota. And I've taught small classes, I've taught large lecture classes that you know are number in the hundreds. And what really pushed me to think about making the change to LinkedIn was I saw a chance to do things at scale. It was a chance to yep. continue to think critically about education, continue to think about learning, but really have this chance at a large, large impact, something that you can't just do when you're, let's say, teaching a couple of classes a semester, but instead thinking about how do we get people to develop uh, learning as a habit. And for me, that is where I'm at right now. It's why <laughs> when I wake up every day, I'm excited to go to work mm. and think about these problems. And I think that will always continue to be a motivating force for me when it comes to anything related to data science. That's fantastic. I love that story. And hopefully that also inspires people who... Uh, like everybody has their own and different passions, but there might also be people listening to this podcast that if you find that you enjoy teaching, then maybe it is your passion. And, uh, you know, like you've got two people here on the podcast who discovered it for themselves uh, talking. So maybe uh, g give it a go, like explore, like uh, uh, in uh, in this in this example, like Eric did, uh, maybe do some webinar uh, seminars, maybe help some other people, and see if you can cultivate that. And if you start really enjoying that, maybe that is your future. Maybe you can build a career around that, or at least even help uh, hundreds or even dozens, or even if you help two people, that's that's already a lot, um, like a huge contribution back back to the world. And it's always admirable when uh, people do that. I find. Yeah, it's and starting small is great. You don't have to start by trying to impact hundreds of people at once. If you turn to the person who you work with and you can help them better understand something, that's as important as, you know, anything that we're doing at scale. So, I think that's it's a great point. I'm glad uh, you were able to bring that up. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Eric, I've got one more question for you before we wrap up. Um okay. From what you've seen in data science and education and uh, from uh, like all the experiences you've had and where you stand now, where do you think the whole field of data science is going and what should our listeners prepare for to be ready for the future that's coming? I think, so this is a, this is a tough question. <laughs> in terms of where it's going, I think 
we're going to see some radical changes as companies start reckoning with the investments that they've made in data science. And by that I mean some companies are going to decide that they haven't seen <laughs> a return on investment. And I think in a lot of cases it's because maybe they're not measuring the right thing. But you're going to see other companies that decide to double down and say, okay, we really need to take seriously how we're measuring the impact of our data scientists on this organization. So to me, what the future, the near future feels like is really developing proofs of concept for really looking at ROI of data scientists, really turning the data science onto the actual data scientists. How are you going to measure your value for us? How are you going to test your value for us? And that's a question I think we're going to have to answer. Um, it's that it only like to this point, I think, you know, data science being this sexy career and having high salaries and all of this stuff, you know, that's great. But companies at the end of the day are a business and they need to see the lift and the amount of improvement they get from adding data scientists. And to me, that's a near term thing. That's something that a lot of companies will be grappling with. And the thing to me, where we're going, I've mentioned, I mentioned scalability at the start of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Scalability is a big deal. I continue to not sometimes care if someone can eke out an extra 0.1% of performance in their model. Uh, I'd rather see them be able to scale and productionize their model so that we don't have to rely on someone uh, maintaining it over time so that we can actually build it to deal with the size of the data that we have. This is an issue that we see at LinkedIn, but it's not unique to LinkedIn. The volume of data is not going to decrease. <laughs> the speed at which it comes in is not going to slow down all of a sudden. And so I think really dealing with scalability, that is a big issue to grapple with here in the near future. Awesome. So return on uh, investment from data science and scalability. And how would you say uh, listeners should prepare or can prepare for that first one? How to you know, be prepared to have those conversations of what the data science, what data science means for the business in terms of the bottom line? I think in a lot of cases, and this is something that I am <laughs> trying to go through now, is figuring out how does the business measure success, mm. right? I mean, in some cases, of course, it's going to be maybe cash-related, right, or revenue-related. But there are probably also other metrics that the business cares a lot about that represent their true north or their success metrics. Right? We have a lot of those internally at LinkedIn. So if you go into a business, it's worth taking the time to better understand what those metrics are. When, like, so, so think about it like this. Executives in almost every company now have an executive dashboard they look at. Mm -hmm. It's really important that we understand what goes on that executive dashboard. Because their knowledge and their assessment of what, how the company is doing is probably going to be guided by a few simple metrics. And if we can try to think about how our work impacts those metrics, I think that's where we can start to be able to show the value to the executives. Rather than just saying, 
well, hey, if I leave, who's going to build your model? <laughs> I don't think that's an effective way to <laughs> communicate yeah. your value. Mm. Um, I mean, it might work in some cases, but certainly thinking about what are they, what do they care about measuring and then how can you figure out how your work contributes to those measures? Mm. Love it. Great tip. So guys, uh, look out for that executive dashboard. Uh, the business is measured, like they, executives measure the business uh, based on that dashboard. And a lot of the time, the executives themselves have KPIs ta- like related to what the dashboard is showing. So that's definitely a, a good tip on how to portray business value. So Eric, thanks so much for coming to the show. Really appreciate you sharing all the insights. How can our listeners contact you or follow you to see how your career progresses from here? You'll be surprised to know that LinkedIn is probably the best uh, place for that. But I really tried to centralize most of my uh, social media activity on LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out to me there. Um, Given the volume of messages I get, I will get back to you, which is maybe a little bit. Um, But interact with me there. Ask questions. If If you have questions that are, you know, really important, I often will not just respond to you individually i'll try to post about it more broadly so that people i can open it up for discussion and also if you're going to post about something or you have a question you know tag me in your post i'd love to see the kind of questions that you're generating the issues that you're (laughs) grappling with because to me that's where we like as we sort of build a community around data science that's how we start to do it and that can be across a lot of social media platforms i just happen you know working for linkedin i feel like it's you know a way for me to learn about the platform and contribute to the conversation awesome thanks a lot so we'll we'll share that in um, episode notes and uh, one final question is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners to help them better their careers yeah it's a book i am uh reading right now so it's really an update to a lot of the machine learning texts um, computer age statistical inference mm-hmm. algorithms evidence and data science uh, by Efron and Hasty and that to me is something you should be reading um, it, it, it really takes a lot of the things that we've discussed in machine learning and issues up to this point and tries to update them based on the big data challenges that we're encountering it's a it's a relatively advanced, um, some parts of it are advanced, and but you, you will know very quickly what those are. But I think generally speaking, it's a useful resource um, to have. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. That's uh, Computer Age Statistical Inference and the rest of that very long name. And yep. uh, in terms of our discussion of soft skills, I'll probably add a book, uh, if you don't mind, I'll add the book I'm reading now. Absolutely. And it's uh, it's been recommended to me by lots of people. Finally got to it. Uh, it's called um, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Um, I'm through I'm through the first two chapters, and it's some some really good tips, especially related to what we discussed today. So there you go, guys. Two books. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Eric, for coming on the show once again. Can't thank you enough. Really enjoyed our discussion today. I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much. So there you have it. That was Eric Weber, Senior Data Scientist at LinkedIn. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, Personally, I really enjoyed how we talked about soft skills in data science. It's a very underrated topic. A lot of people glance over it because it seems so much easier than all the technical things that you need to know in data science. They forget about it. They don't develop those soft uh, skills, interpersonal skills, people skills, and... 
Um, hopefully from this podcast you were able to see how important they are, how many aspects and areas, uh, in how many aspects and areas of the work they come up. And I really wish for you to uh, see, there's always room for development, regardless of how great or not great your soft skills are, there's always going to be room for development. And I uh, hope this podcast inspires you to see where your room for growth in that area is, because uh, ultimately, we all want to be rock star data scientists, and this is one of the crucial skills. There's there's a lot of talented people out there who can crunch numbers and who can uh, get uh, the insights, but there are much fewer data scientists out there who can actually convey their insights in a meaningful way and educate the stakeholders that were after um, the results in the first place. So there you go. Uh, make sure to connect with Eric on LinkedIn. His uh, link, the URL to his LinkedIn will be on the show notes at www.superdatascience.com slash 111. Uh, there you'll find the transcript for this episode and any other materials that we've mentioned in our conversation. If you know any data scientists who are great data scientists, but not yet rockstar data scientists, then share this episode with them and they will also hear about the power of soft skills in data science. I really hope for this podcast to help as many people as it can, and you can help us out by sharing it with your colleagues and friends. And on that note, thank you so much for being here today. I look forward to seeing you here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.